Hello, 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 and welcome to the Timelines Project, a podcast all about the lore and story of Magic the Gathering, a very fun and interactive trading card game. If you're new, welcome. If you're not, welcome back. Newcomers should leave and go listen to episode 9 and 11, which are about time streams, uh, because this episode uh, is about Bloodlines, which is a direct sequel to time streams. You're gone? Good. Bloodlines is the fourth in a series of four books about Urza Planeswalker and his battle against the Phyrexians. Fun fact, uh, the name of the podcast, Timelines Project, is a reference to this book. I thought Timelines Project sounded cool, and it referenced Bloodlines Project, which is the episode. Uh, And the eventual goal of the podcast is to create a complete timeline of magic events. Anyway... I thought I'd share that with you, but uh, without further ado, let's get started with the topic for today, Bloodlines, by Lauren L. Coleman. Prologue. Our tale begins at the Tolarian Academy, on the Isle of Tolaria. Our first main character, Baron, was returning from a vacation in a mild slow-time rift. Tolaria was covered in time rifts of varying speeds. They all had been created when Urza Planeswalker had blown up a time machine, destroying the original Tolarian Academy. Baron returned to the school to find that Urza had also returned, and the Planeswalker had cook- cooked up a brand new scheme in Baron's brief absence. Urza had decided that his previous ultimate weapon, a giant flying ship called the Weatherlight, wasn't ultimate enough. He had made plans for a series of powerful artifacts to be made that, when all brought together with the Weatherlight, would form an unstoppable weapon capable of destroying the Phyrexians. I'm not going to explain who the Phyrexians are. If you're confused, go listen to a different episode, because I've explained who they are enough. Urza called the series of artifacts the Legacy. When the Weatherlight and the Legacy came together, they would form the Legacy weapon. Baron was ready to go along with the Legacy idea, but Urza wasn't finished. Along with the artifacts, there would also be a human component to the legacy. The human component would serve as Urza's heir, and it would be their job to bring the legacy together and destroy the Phyrexians. But the heir couldn't just be anyone. They would have to be perfect, able to understand the Phyrexians well enough to destroy them. The only way to get a person that Urza needed was to create them, and the only way to do that was to selectively breed humans. Urza called this ethically questionable plan the Bloodlines Project. Baron didn't like Urza's breeding program at all, but decided that saving his planet was better than debating Urza on the morality of eugenics. Chapter 1. Morally Gray Time to introduce our first new main character, Gotha. Gotha was a senior student and prodigy like Teferi from the previous book. Unlike Teferi, when Gotha grew up, instead of becoming more mature and humble, he became more arrogant and entitled. The gear was 3385 AR, and the legacy in Bloodlines projects had been going on for six years already. Gotha was waiting for Baron to finish teaching the new scholars about the Metathran, who were the artificial humans that had been created for the Bloodlines project. Side note, uh, one of the students was a boy named Timon. He will be important later in the story, 
and he's introduced here, so I thought I'd mention him now. After Baron was finished instructing the scholars, he and Gotha went to Urza's labs. Baron showed him the first of the Metathran, and told Gotha that he was being promoted from a senior student, and he would have a lot more to do with the Bloodlines project. Uh, it is also time to introduce another new main character, Rain. I think that's how you say her name. Rain was a senior scholar and Baron's future wife. Speaking of which, after the first tests were completed, Urza decided that the Bloodlines project would have to move to slow time labs, and Baron was moving permanently to oversee the project. He proposed to Rain and asked her to move with him to the time rifts. I know it seems out of nowhere, but they've actually been dating for around five years. Uh, Rain said yes, and they got married. Chapter 2. That's Wrath spelled R-A-T-H. Bloodlines is split into about five perspectives, and we've only met two of them so far, uh, so you know what that means. New character time. Krogh was a member of the Phyrexian Inner Circle. The Inner Circle was a group of the most powerful Phyrexians on the plane, and they were second only to the machine god Yogmoth. Speaking of Yogmoth, Krogh had been summoned before Phyrexia's creator for a debriefing. Yogmoth was furious when he learned that Urza Planeswalker had not been captured after attacking Phyrexia. See episode 5 and 7 for more details. Luckily, Yogmoth didn't take his anger out on Krogh, or I guess unluckily for Urza. Instead, he implanted in his mind information about Phyrexia's next big project. Krogh was shown an artificial world called Wrath. The plane would serve as a staging ground for the Phyrexian invasion on, of Dominaria. But it wasn't ready for that quite yet, and Yogmoth needed someone to look after the plane while it expanded to the correct size. Before I get ahead of myself, I should explain how the Phyrexians hoped to use Wrath as a staging ground. You see, Wrath was made of a material called Flowstone. Flowstone is a real thing, it's formed in caves. But in Magic's multiverse, it's a tan rock that is highly susceptible to heat and telepathic manipulation. Flowstone had the unique property of being able to create a bridge between planes. The Phyrexians used, planned to use this bridge ability to merge Wrath and Dominaria together. All the Phyrexians would be on Wrath, and when the plane merged, they would all be on Dominaria. So they're their armies would just materialize on Dominaria and take it over in one fell swoop. Unfortunately, Wrath was much smaller than Dominaria when it was created, and so it couldn't merge. Yet. Bridging gaps wasn't the only thing Flowstone could do. Apparently, it could also be produced in massive quantities. Enough Flowstone could be created to expand the plane beyond the boundaries set in place when the plane was first created. I should also mention that Wrath is a flat disk, that's how it's able to have an edge. I've been rambling on for a bit, but all this to say, Yogmoth needed Krogh to find someone to be the Evancar of Wrath. The Evancar is just a fancy word for the Overseer. The Evancar of Wrath would oversee the Flowstone production, and during the invasion, they would assist in the merging of Wrath and Dominaria. After this debriefing, Yogmoth dismissed Krogh to find the Evancar. We will leave Krogh and go meet the first Evancar of Wrath on a plane called K 
Corasin. The first Avankar was named Davil. Davil was a psychic whose body had begun to deteriorate at a very young age because of his powers, I guess. Because of this, Davil has spent years honing his mind until he was incredibly strong. Side note, Davil's primary ability is called Astral Projection, though he can also read surface level thoughts, and later on he gains control of Flowstone. So anyway, the Phyraxians showed up on Coruscant and convinced Davil to help them get an artifact that was locked up in the vault in his village using his magic powers. Davil agreed because everyone in his village treated him like garbage, and then, after getting the artifact, the Phyrexians took Davil to Phyrexia to meet with Krog. Chapter 3. Less Than Morally Gray Six years had passed since Gotha had been promoted from the role of senior student, which is only two chapters ago. Timon was delivering a report to Gotha. The report was bad. And I quote, Results of recessive gene enhancements post-birth, negative. Surviving subjects show high rate of mutation, considered inadequate for further bloodline development. End quote. You see, Gotha had been doing some shady stuff and tampering with the genes of the Metathran post-birth. I'll remind you that the Metathran were the artificial beings created for the Bloodlines project. Gotha was furious that his experiment hadn't worked, and was even more furious when Timon threatened to tell Urza and Baron about his tampering, which, by the way, you weren't supposed to do anything with the genes post-birth, but he was doing it anyway. Gotha decided the easiest solution was just to destroy the report, so he did. A few more years passed, and Gotha was summoned before Urza and Baron. They were revoking his access to his fast-time labs because of the high amount of mutations and brutality in his subjects. Gotha was angry and stormed out. After he left, Baron expressed his concern to Urza that Gotha had introduced Phyrexian genetic material into his bloodlines. But, gasp, Urza had gone behind Baron's back, Gotha the Phyrexian material. Chapter 4 Weatherlight's Last Flight And when I say last flight, I mean for this book, because of course the Weatherlight will fly again. It's just, it stops flying in this book. The Weatherlight was on one last mission to the forest of Yavamaya, and then it was going to go undercover for a while, until Urza's heir was bred and could take over the ship. Karn had temporarily joined the crew. Multani had also joined, along with an elf from the forest of Lanawar named Raphalos. Multani had been away from his parent forest for the better part of a century, and was eager to return. Oh yeah, uh, Yavamaya is this massive forest, uh, and they're allied with Teleria. Multani had joined the Weatherlight to assist the Telerian embassy and uh, the Lanawar ambassador. Raphalos is that ambassador, by the way. As Yavamaya came into view over the horizon, the passengers aboard the Weatherlight saw that the beaches of the island had been covered in a thick growth of vines. Since Urza's last visit in the previous book, Yavamaya had gone into a hypergrowth and decay cycle, increasing its defenses as fast as possible in preparation for the inevitable Phyrexian invasion. The Weatherlight got its supplies and left with Multani, but Raphalos stayed to learn more about the forest. 
Chapter 5 The Evancar of Wrath Davil stepped through the portal into the fourth sphere of Phyrexia. He was there to meet with Krogh. I guess I haven't really described Krogh yet, so I'll do that now. The Inner Circle member had a skeletal frame with a skull-like head, uh, filled with sharp metal teeth. Krogh's frame was covered in ribbons of metal that looked very much like a cloak, though they were really a part of him. The cloak acted as both armor and a weapon, as any one of the thin but indestructible sheets of metal could detach from the rest and spear an attacker. Alright, description over. Krogh told Davil that he had been selected to be the steward of the Plane of Wrath while an Evancar was being selected. Davil and Krogh stepped through another portal and onto the artificial Plane of Wrath. Wrath was a cold, windy, sunless world. The sky was eternally overcast, and occasionally red lightning flickered out across the clouds, accompanied by thunder. The surface of Wrath was a tan, sandstone-like rock called Flowstone. The Flowstone Plain where Davil stood stretched out as far as the eye could see, broken only by a massive volcano of Flowstone. In the cauldra of the volcano was the Phyrexian Fortress, where the Flowstone was created. Davil would reside in this fortress, his job would be to increase the flowstone production to push back the borders of wrath, and to contain any uprising from the slaves who ran the machinery that made the flowstone. Krogh left Davil to make his way to the fortress. He had some unfinished business. You see, Davil was not the first steward, and the previous steward would not take kindly to being fired. And I mean fired, literally. He would be tossed into a furnace and melted down. The battle was short and violent. Krogh threw aside the previous steward's skull and took a seat upon the Avancar's throne. Chapter 6 Memory Loss I, uh, I haven't mentioned Karn much in this book. Throughout Bloodlines, Karn is suffering from what is referred to as infinite memory. It's a bit tricky to explain, so I'll use an example. When a human is cut, the wound eventually heals. But when Karn is cut, the scratch doesn't heal. It's permanent. The same is applied to Karn's memory. While painful experiences eventually fade into distant memory, for humans, every memory Karn had was just as fresh as the day it happened. This caused Karn to sink into a deep melancholy. Baron noticed and talked to Urza about a solution. Urza came up with a way to cap Karn's memory at 20 years and all the memories past this time would fade and be forgotten. Baron told Karn of Urza's idea, and Karn agreed to it. Urza made a small Thran metal cage for Karn's intellectual cortex, which is a small power stone. Thran metal has a unique property of growing over time, and as the Thran metal cage grew, the bars would tighten around Karn's intellectual cortex stone and constrict his memory. The operation was completed, and all Karn's memories from over a century of life began to fade. Gotha was leaving Teleria. He had forged Baron's stamp of approval and loaded all his equipment onto a ship that had briefly stopped at Teleria and was bound for Argive. Chapter 7 The Warlords of Keld Gotha spent 12 years wandering Dominaria, till he made his way to Keld. 
Keld was a mountainous, frozen country. The Keldans were most likely inspired by the Norsemen of medieval Europe. They were a warlike people who roamed Dominaria, plundering and bringing loot back to their mountainous home. Gotha had decided to visit Keld because he had heard of the Keldum Witch Kings and the unique ways they were created. The process was crude, but it sounded a lot like the Bloodlines Project. Gotha decided to visit Keld and see if the Keldans would be interested in enhancement. He made his way up through the mountains to the Keldon capital. Gotha requested an audience with the Doyens. The Doyens are the warlord leaders of Keldon society. Fun fact about the Keldons, though their society appears to be patriarchal, the women are actually the ones who run everything, and the men just fight. The female leaders are called Doeni. Do, do, do. I can't, I can't, I don't know how to pronounce that. The council hall of the Keldons wasn't so much a hall as it was an inverted amphitheater. Picture a giant cone. It was split into tiers, with the least powerful warlords at the bottom. From the bottom of the council cone, Gotha made his case to the assembled Doyen. In a show of power, Gotha confronted one of the warlords who questioned his plans. Gotha got the upper hand quickly, using stunning spells, but he just as quickly was overpowered when the warlord, warlord used battle magic to counteract his spells. The Doyen was going to kill Gotha, but another warlord... Uh, by the name of Creole, stepped in and broke his arm. Not Gotha's, the other guys. Creole thought Gotha's plan might have some merit, and decided to let him live. However, he also wanted to see some immediate evidence that Gotha could be of use to the Keltons. Gotha told Creole that he could scry. Scrying is a form of farsight. It's like opening a window to see what's elsewhere. Gotha could use his scrying magic to find the best loot for the Keldons to capture. It was enough, and Creole let Gotha live. Two years passed, Gotha had set up a temporary lab, and his actual lab was being built. Chapter 8. The Hunt for Urza Planeswalker And I quote, Urza was unprepared for the Phyrexian attack. End quote. I uh, just threw that in there because I thought it was the best way to start the chapter. Urza had been sneak attacked by two Phyrexian Negators. The Negators were elite Phyrexian assassins. One Negator had an arm cannon that shot a laser capable of burning Urza's energy form, which is like saying the laser could burn fire. While Urza tried to dodge the cannon blast, the second Negator released a sound wave that disrupted Urza's form long enough for the laser beam from the first Phyrexian to catch up with him. Luckily, it only grazed his arm. Urza summoned red mana and shot a ball of lightning at the Phyrexians. They dodged the lightning, but the lapse in their attacks gave Urza enough time to pull out his staff and blast the Phyrexians with a sonic blast that caused the glistening oil in their veins to explode. Davil was on a routine maintenance check of the Flowstone Protection Facility. He was flanked by four Phyrexians, who would protect him from any workers who tried to harm him. Davil had been the steward of Wrath for 133 chorus in years. During that time, he'd also been put in charge of the hunt for Urza Planeswalker. Davil was the one who had made the Negators from the previous section. In the 133 years, Davil had also been quite accomplished at bending the Flowstone to his will. 
Chapter 9. Raffalos. Multani and the Weatherlight had once again returned to Yavamaya. It had been 73 years since their last visit in Chapter 4. Multani was greeted by Raffalos, the Lanoar elf. He hadn't aged a day, which even for elves is a little weird. Keep in mind, Dominarian elves aren't Tolkien elves. They live for a long time, but they're not immortal. They do age. Multani sensed that in his absence, the spirit of Yavamaya had been using Raffalos as its vessel. Multani also sensed that the elf was frightened of the forest spirit intruding on his mind. And, uh, yeah, that's really it for this chapter, so moving on. Chapter 10. The Witch Kings of Killed. Back to Gatha. He was in a meeting with Trogue, the grandson of Creel, the warlord who had given Gatha a chance. Trogue had been one of the first subjects in Gatha's experiments, and Trogue wanted Gatha to conduct the same experiments on his son that he had done on Trogue when he was young. After Gatha agreed to make his son into a powerful witch king like his father, Trogue pledged that he or one of his descendants would secure Gatha a seat on the Council of Doyens. Now we'll make a shift over to Urza and Baron. They were in the middle of an argument, uh, like usual. Baron wanted Urza to shut down Gotha's operation and killed. He thought it was immoral like the rest of Gotha's work. Urza argued that it was the Kelton's choice, and Gotha's work was just free information and could help them avoid the mistakes that he was making. During their discussion, Urza accidentally let slip that the Tolarian bloodlines weren't the only ones, and that he, Urza, had been secretly conducting experiments off, off the island. Baron wasn't mad, just resigned, and just asked for the data so that he could compare it with the Tolarian bloodlines. A little time later, Baron went with Timon, the student from earlier in the book. Timon was leaving the academy and was going to live on the other side of the island, in a village of deformed Metathran. Chapter 11, Sarah's Disciples. Uh, it's a new character time again. Some of you might have wondered where the Weatherlight dropped off the Saren refugees at the end of the last book, Time Streams. Well, you're about to find out. The refugees had settled down in the kingdom of Banalia, which coincidentally is also the site of one of er Urza's bloodlines. The perspective our story follows is that of the leader of the Saren refugees, Liani, an angel from Sarah's realm. Actually, we're going to leave Liani for now and come back to her later, uh, so this is really just an introduction. We're actually going to skip over to Capuchin Manor. Uh, Benali is split into three ruling clans, Ortovi, Capuchin, and Baylock. The three clans took turns running the kingdom, and each moon cycle the responsibilities would rotate. Anyway, Urza was at Capuchin Manor negotiating a marriage between clan Ortovi and Capuchin. The leader of Clan Capuchin, Nathan Capuchin, was wavering, and to push him over the edge, Urza offered to give him Karn. Karn agreed to this proposition, and Urza's project continued unhindered. Chapter 12 Krieg! Gatha was experimenting on Kolos and trying to turn them into massive armored war beasts. Kolos, by the way, are a cross between an ox and a mountain goat. Gotha's experimentation was cut short 
by an angry witch king by the name of Varden. Varden wanted Gotha to make his son into a witch king, but Gotha refused. Luckily, he had nothing to fear because he had Krieg, the most powerful witch king ever. Krieg was one of Trog's descendants, and as previously mentioned, the most powerful witch king ever. After Varden left in a huff, Krieg stated that Varden would not sit quietly. Gotha was not afraid, though, for he had Krieg, and Krieg was unstoppable. Fast forward a bit, and Varden and Krieg's war hosts were facing off. I've never really explained what a Witch King actually is, so I'll do that now. Keldon Witch Kings had the unique ability to draw off of others' battle rage to increase their own power. The larger the war host, the larger the Witch King. Though in Krieg's case, even with equal-sized armies, Krieg was much more powerful than Varden, because reasons. Krieg led his war host in a charge and ripped into Varden's army. As Krieg fought, he grew in size and strength, becoming a one-man army. As he fought, Varden's war host began to shift sides and join Krieg's, until Varden's small elite force of guards was swept away in a tide of Keldons united under Krieg's banner. Krieg was unstoppable. Fast forward some more to a council meeting. Krieg was fulfilling Trog's promise and granting Gotha a seat on the council. The few Doen that had objected were tossed from their seats, and their bodies shattered on the floor of the council cone. Krieg then ascended to the highest tier above all. It was reserved for the warlord who would lead the charge into the final battle when the world eventually came to an end. In ascending to the final platform, Krieg declared his immortality and challenged the world to try and prove him wrong. None tried to dethrone him, and no warrior on Dominaria could have. All right, that is it for this episode. I finished the script at 2 in the morning, so I want to go to bed. I don't know why I felt it necessary to share that, but I, uh, I did. Next week's episode is going to be all about Flowstone and how uh, it's a fictional material, obviously. Uh, so stay tuned for that anyway. And uh, that's all, folks. See you next week.